teachers and school leaders need to look at culturally responsive practice every day. And every new year, every new semester, there's a whole host of new students. Then you're again becoming a student of the cultures that are represented in your classroom. I'm Dr. Lamont Repolette, the president of Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. This is Urban Impact a podcast where we examine the complex issues facing urban communities through meaningful conversations with scholars, community leaders, and others who are driving change. Recorded and produced on our campus in Union, New Jersey, this is Urban Impact. Here are your hosts, Michael Salvatore and Barbara George Johnson. Today, we've got another great episode for you. We are talking about cultural competency in the classroom. Welcome to Urban Impact. So it's my pleasure to welcome Ms. Ana Bredesia, Director of the Center for Positive Development of Urban Children at the John S. Watson Institute for Urban Policy and Research at Kane University. Ms. Bredesia has extensive experience working in educational policy and educator empowerment, focusing on social services, crisis management, nonprofit support, higher education, and of course, public policy. Also for the last 17 years, She's been dedicated to mentoring teachers and school leaders to be culturally responsive agents of change in their respective classrooms and schools. So, Anna, I'm particularly interested in how you came to creating a program that looks to develop the skill sets of teachers from daycare all the way through high school, uh, particularly around cultural competency and multiculturalism in the classroom. So share a little bit of that experience and what led you to creating a program like that. So I took a, a career change and went into education. I started directing a multicultural child care development center in the city of Trenton, was there eight and a half years and found that my teachers weren't certified. So I was mentoring and coaching my teachers and getting certified myself. But we would go to school together, we would study together, and we certified seven teachers in the history of the Puerto Rican community daycare, there wasn't any certified teachers. There was just lovely people who loved children who had been in the field for 25 years, but never considered going back to school because their first language was Spanish. And so it, I fell in love with early childhood and I got hungry. So I went back to school, got my master's in education with a concentration in early childhood, got my certification in from preschool to third grade. And soon after I got my master's, I really felt compelled to want to teach other teachers. So I went the, um, I started teaching at the county college as an adjunct professor and really helping teachers look at the diversity of their classroom and help them understand that whatever children bring, that cultural wealth that they bring into the classroom needs to be part of the curriculum. It just can't be a poster on the wall. It can't just be during February Black History Month, September Hispanic Month, that it needed to be something that was embedded into the curriculum every single day. Did you meet resistance with the teachers who have so much on their plate? They have very limited time to present a curriculum usually that is um, designed, right? And it's sort of regulated by our departments of education. Was there resistance to coming into the classroom and adding a, sort of another layer of what, what might have seen like work for them? It really depended on the teacher's personality and their mindset. There were teachers that were very resistant. You know, I have too much to do to include this. It's not a priority for me. But when I went into classrooms and I saw 
students that were majority African-American students and a white teacher were racially diverse children that were from um, regions of Africa, Poland, um, Burma, who were sitting in silence and weren't part of the conversation, weren't part of the activities. It really broke my heart and it made me even more passionate about helping teachers become more culturally culturally conscious and responsive. Conscious in the sense that they have to be aware that it's important that these children bring so much to the classroom, their global perspective that could really enrich curricula and could really enrich the activities that the other children experience and helping them build a community of learner that there's acceptance, a sense of belonging, a sense that I can add to to the conversation and that's what led us at the Watson Institute to design a teacher program that gives teachers 21 hours of professional development and cultural competency and nine months of mentoring. Because I believe this topic is so important and tied to who we are as emotional people that you can't just do a workshop or a course and be done with it. You have to be able to instill a lifelong learning process that this program is just the beginning. We're, we're scratching the surface of something more deeper and that uh, teachers and school leaders need to look at culturally responsive practice every day, 180 days in the year, year after year, and really be able to find competencies in various levels. And every new year, every new semester, there's a whole host of new students. Then you're again becoming a student of the cultures that are represented in your classroom. Wow. You talked about cultural um, consciousness or competence, uh, cultural responsiveness. Uh, this is a hot topic right now. I mean, I opened my inbox this morning. I mean, they're talking about Texas uh, and bills being passed and if Florida and what's happening in terms of DEI. Uh, and this is certainly an element that people want to hear about. Why is this more important now than ever before in our time, specifically in education? Well, that's a loaded question. Sure is. Because I, I was doing this work back when I was in social service because I believe it's part of just extending value and that human connection that we have to value what people bring to the table, their language, their values, their cultural background, their norms, and the things that they hold dear. And for, for immigrants and refugees, that's what they hold on to. They may leave all their material things in their country, but they bring with them and hold sacred their language and their culture. And we are finally not just talking about this buzzword. We're, we're finally paying attention in ways that matter to students, to teachers, to even school leaders. And I think that's exciting. We're in, in, in an exciting time where we're looking at how culturally responsive practices can really close the racial achievement gap. And I think that's we can do that, even though people say that's impossible. As Barbara mentioned earlier, our teachers resistant. Some teachers are resistant, but some teachers are so open to it. Says, "Yes, I'm having so many newcomers in my classroom that do not speak English. Show me how to reach them. Show me how to connect them. Show me how to do cultural literacy moments so that the students feel that." Their culture and language have a place in this classroom. And some of them are soaring because they're open. And those who are resistant take a lot more, I guess, uh, coaching and encouragement that they can 
all teachers, I believe all teachers can become culturally responsive. It's not just for uh, racially diverse teachers. It's not for just teachers that speak uh, another language other than English. I think we all can be culturally responsive and conscious when we're aware that those values and language and cultures hold uh, a very sacred place in the heart of those who are coming to this country for a better life, for the American dream. So, Anna, let me just say that uh, we so appreciate the pioneer you've been in leading that conversation about cultural competency and the importance of that, and that it's not just a hot topic or a hot button issue for the moment for the work that you've been doing with the Janice Watson Institute for many years, and now here at Kane, It is really critical for us to understand this is about continu- continuity of acceptance of the many cultures that exist in our community and how we ensure that every student coming into a classroom has equal access and opportunity, right? So the equity uh, space is critical. And so you saw the opportunity to look at the profile of urban students in particular and the fact that they were not being seen sitting in that classroom, right? And took a, what might have been a problem because teachers were not necessarily connecting to the child, as you mentioned earlier, that sat there and was not really engaging. And you said, let's bring this opportunity to show teachers how they can connect. So talk to me about the experiences of your program, the mentors that you mentioned earlier, the mentorship that happens with teacher and uh, the program, and then how that has impacted those unseen students in that classroom. I often use the word that I am a possibilist because I believe that all things are possible. And the center is called the Center for the Positive Development of Urban Children. So I need to move a lot of things out of the way before we used to focus on what were the problems and the vulnerabilities of urban children where I have in the 18 years being at the Watson Institute, I have kind of shifted to look at what are their strengths and how are they resilient and how can we learn from children that are crossing the border? Like New Jersey has unaccompanied minors. Like last year, 40,000 unaccompanied minors came over the border for this American dream, for a better life, to be reconnected with family members. And when our mentors go into the classroom, we're often asking powerful questions to teachers. What are the languages your students speak? Where are they from? How, if you, if these walls could speak, what would they say? What, what are the things that you're hanging? And there's some resistance because people don't, you know, well, tell me about instructional practice. Don't tell me about the environment. But the environment, the, in, the learning design, the environmental design of learning is so critical to content, to what you learn, to feeling that this is a place where I belong. When there's a Jamaican flag, when there's an, an Irish flag, when there's an Italian Flag, when there are artifacts that represent the diversity of the of the students and even the teachers, because I tell them you are a cultural person, you should share your culture with your students because that's real and they can relate to that because then they'll say, well, I also have a grandmother who speaks Italian or who speaks Spanish, but I don't particularly speak Spanish or Italian, but I'm still Italian or I'm still Latino, even though I don't speak the languages. So it's important for the mentors to really empower teachers and give them permission to be creative about how they value and bring into the curriculum 
storybooks and doing math from around the world. Because sometimes we think about culturally responsive practice with literature. If we read a book, we're done. Check mark. You know, but we can do cultural math and cultural science and look for our instruction to be from the global community, from what's happening in the world. Um, I remember we had a classroom that we were mentoring in Montclair. An Egyptian parent came in and taught the kids how to write their their name in the Egyptian um, symbols. And she talked to them about how she came here and how she had to learn English. You know, talking about two generations, allowing my mom to come and talk to the class. How proud would a student feel when they see their parents being part of the curriculum, when they see their parents as teachers? And they say, wow, I really love the way your mom came in. And she came in her her um, typical attire and the kids were touching her little beads and really having an experience that they would have not had had that teacher not invited that parent to share their culture, to be part of the classroom. And those are the things we want to see in every district, not just in the urban districts. We want to see culturally responsive practices across New Jersey. I, I always felt... Uh, and I am totally biased in terms of early childhood education. It was my first real job uh, as an early childhood teacher. And I was always uh, later in life trying to replicate what I did as an early childhood teacher in the mid to late 90s, trying to do that my entire career in every classroom. So when you talked about cultural responsiveness, this is what we did in the late 90s in early childhood classrooms, uh, particularly in urban communities. Uh, when we talk about social emotional domains and learning, we were talking about this stuff in the 90s uh, and the turn of the century. And now it's the, the buzzword and it's spawned wellness and what we're, we're all talking about now. But I do think that the work that's being done in early childhood and the advocacy and the policy that's created has set a great foundation. So the work that you're doing, I'm, I'm a huge fan of. And I think it really can transform what's happening in high schools. If you can teach a high school class uh, in a way that you're promoting this discovery-based learning and respecting culture and, and uh, infusing uh, themes into learning, uh, students will walk out and be super excited and charged for the next learning opportunity. It's getting yes. to that point. That's the next phase of work is getting that early childhood mindset and philosophy, uh, the domains that we talked about for for 20 years and, and sliding that up to scale so that we don't have students who are disengaged in middle school and high school Absolutely. anymore. So Yes. And if I could add, um, when we started our program, it was focused on child care centers, family child care providers. We were even in infant rooms. And then after nine years, we started to go into kindergarten, first, second grade, into elementary school, middle schools. And now we're in high school and all our coaches have an early childhood background. And so we have seen how music, you know, there's our oh, middle school and high school students, they don't like music. I said, we're wired for music. What are you talking about? So we, we really encourage teachers to dance with their students, to sing with their students. And I said, kids don't care if you sound good or not. They're just having fun. Or now with smart boards, you can bring in music and not have to sing in front of your students if you're if you're shy about that but bringing those early childhood concepts about sitting on the floor circle time floor time you know sharing um, a cultural meal with them being able to hear a parent being able you know a lot of students um, take a whole month and they go off to guatemala or they go off to europe you know when they come back here's the whole unit around what they did 
and having a student become the teacher for a week or two. Those connections, you know, as Dr. Gray said, they don't forget that. They'll remember that. I remember when the student came back and told me about Guatemala, when they told me about being in Italy for the summer. Those are impressions that stay with students forever. So, so let me share that I'm a first-generation American. My parents are from Guyana, South America. And I will tell you that one of my fondest memories, so here I am sitting many, 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 many years later, right? And one of my fondest memories was in middle school having to uh, share our cultural family experiences. So bringing in the flag, bringing a meal from your culture, dressing in a particular cultural garb. And it was like one of the most memorable experiences in my middle school years that I still speak fondly of, particularly when I speak to young people in schools, et cetera, and we talk about multiculturalism and the importance of it. And Anna knows that I have shared my story in circle time with the group sometime that she's worked with. But having said that, it's therefore important that we have teachers who understand that, right? So what, knowing that you have done a lot of work also in teacher development, Anna, what can we do to ensure that we have teachers who embrace culture or maybe uh, come from a particular uh, culture, different culture themselves, participate in the education system, are prepared to be educators in a pre-K through 12th grade and beyond system? Well, I think we need to continue to do professional development. As I mentioned earlier, it's not one and done. You don't go to a workshop and now you're culturally responsive. You know, it's something that you need a mentor or a coach to uh, challenge you with critical questions, to model for you. We have one of our mentors is part of New Jersey Young Audiences, and she is a dancer by training. So she comes in and she does oral stories. And she comes in and gives a demonstration of how you can incorporate literacy, dance, math, and science all in one 30-minute. And, and they're, the teachers are kind of surprised. And oh, they're like, you, you did all this content area in 30 minutes? I says, yes, it can be done. And not we're going to do culturally responsive practice, cultural, cultural literacy moments every day, but we're going to make room once a week where we're sharing stories, where we're learning dances. And we ha we're working now in, in Summit, and we're seeing the music teacher do dances from Germany, dances from around the world with her students. So you were exposing them to seeing. So they saw Liana do her 30-minute dancing and uh, content area, and then they can go back and model that with their own students in real time. And then they'll have the coach who will have – a session with them to just unpack, you know, how did that feel? What could you add? What, what could be other cultures that you could include in the next lesson that you share with the students? Absolutely. I love the message here. And it's not to abandon the scope and sequence, but it's to, for educators and educational leaders to kind of embrace this concept of creating a peak moment for students. You know, uh, Barbara, when you just shared that experience, like that's the one thing that really stood out in a very positive way about middle school. And you might be able to rattle off 10 things that weren't so positive, right? Absolutely. So if we have the opportunity as an educator, educational leader to create these peak moments for students, let's start with something that really matters that connects to them. It's not going to be the lesson in algebra that you taught on the seventh day of the school or during the month of February. It's going to be something meaningful that connects to their life. Uh, and I want to talk to you about research uh, because there's 
so many well-intentioned researchers out there who spend a tremendous amount of time researching a particular topic, and it gets maybe 15 seconds of fame, maybe, right? Maybe 15 minutes. Maybe it makes it to a news channel where they say, tonight, learn about why early childhood learners have a better outcome in life. Tune in later, and then you never hear about it again. So what happens with a lot of research, it tends to sit and it doesn't always have the impact. But your research, a lot of research that you've done, has had an impact, and it's really because of the gateway that you have to public policy. So can you talk about that in your opinion? How important is it that research being conducted makes it into a specific realm of policy and and the change that comes from that? I think it's super critical for us to help people make time and space in their schedule to see what the science says and then to be able to help them transition from what's on paper to what they can incorporate into their practice, the the two Ps, right? Paper to practice, you know? So um, I think that we have been very successful in reflecting back to teachers what they've done well and how it lines up with research and then being able to do a publication every year where we talk about the literature review that we've done. We talk about what the teachers have done and we have made um, a translation of what they've done in real time with children and how it connects with theory and practice and being able to, every teacher, it's almost like a yearbook for them to be able to see their faces in that publication and to be able to receive credit that they're using culturally responsive practice that is evidence-based, that is linked to research, that is proven to help diverse students achieve more, graduate, start to read more. Um, I remember being in a dual language classroom in Trenton where this young second grader, an African-American second grader, is reading to me in beautiful Spanish and, and I told him, are you Latino? He says, no, I grew up in the city of Trenton. But he's been in a dual language program since kindergarten. So from kindergarten to second grade, he has achieved proficiency in both these languages, enough to read to me a Spanish book. So research says that children can speak all the languages that they are exposed to. So it's our job to expose them so that they can be bilingual, trilingual, multilingual. And we can do this in our schools if we make space for the research and actually translate that research into our practices. Thank you for listening to Urban Impact, a podcast produced by Kane, New Jersey's Urban Research University. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get podcasts. For more information, visit kane.edu forward slash urban impact.